You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to compare Mormon and Credo-Christian thought in order to clarify distinctions. Boy, I butchered that one, (laughs) but you get the idea. (laughs) That's what we're here for. Yep. Oh, man. That's where my brain's at right now. It feels like a muddled, mushy, uh, you know, like spaghetti or something. (laughs) That is mushy. Yeah, very mushy and mangled. Mangled just sounds like a gross word. That's just not a great word when you're talking about food. We're apparently not hungry this time. Yeah, no, this one's a little different than the Beyond Meat conversation. (laughs) What you been up to, man, lately? I was about to ask you the same thing. Well, I beat you to it. That's true. Well, I have to say, I want to put in a plug for this. I went to the Natural History Museum of Utah to see an exhibit they had. Mm. Yes. Did they have like aliens or kind of stuff? (laughs) Some of it felt alien, of course. Um, But they have an exhibit currently till I think sometime in April. um, Where's this museum at? Salt Lake? Yeah, by the University of Utah. Oh, yeah. By Red View Gardens. Oh, yeah, I don't know where that is. It's an incredible museum, I think. Is it near the zoo? Um, I don't know. Hoggle Zoo? I mean, I I guess that is, it is, it might be easy to get there from there. See? See? (laughs) You know where the Natural History Museum is, but I know know where where the zoo is. I know where the zoo is. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the last time I went to the Hoggle Zoo. But um, they had an exhibit on Angkor Wat, the temple site in ancient Cambodia. Mm. And of course they have actual stuff there, right? So you're yeah. looking at idols of Hindu gods and and Buddha and whatever. That's wild. Um, you know, they're 14, 1500 years old in some yeah. cases. Yeah. Uh, and talk to some of the experts there about their, their theology, their temple theology. I mean, it's high, it's funny. Um, I think it was very relevant to some of what we've mm. been talking about. Interesting. Um, but I highly recommend going and seeing it before the exhibit's done. But what about you? Where have you been? Yeah. I went up to Louisville. And yeah, that's how you say it if you've lived there before. <laughs> Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, get it right, people. It's not Louisville. It's not Louisville. <laughs> it's Louisville. You just slur it together. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, that was a good time. We uh, there's a church there that I was a member of for eight years while I was in seminary and everything else. And um, yeah, so once a year they have a conference where people who've scattered all over the world for ministry purposes, primarily uh, pastors, missionaries, will regather there at Emmanuel just for. A few days of worship and teaching, so we went through Second Timothy, and uh, wow. really good. Got to eat some of my at some good restaurants, some of the old favorites. Got to have some good coffee at some old favorite places. Got to explore some really good credo Christian bookstores, which we don't have a lot of those uh, in Utah. No, so uh, yeah, there's a couple of bookstores there in Louisville. One of them is my personal favorite. It's uh, just this locally owned bookstore hole-in-the-wall kind of a feel, but this guy stocks it for seminary students, so it's just loaded with good theology books, 
And he's had a pattern to compete with Amazon where he consistently puts every single book at 30% off. So you're guaranteed you're going to get 30% off of the book, any new book. And then uh, you can also find better deals than that because he takes used books and things like that. So it's pretty, it's pretty sweet pickings there. That sounds so, uh, awesome. Yeah. And is that it the highlight? Oh, yeah. It, it always is. It's, <laughs> I, like In my opinion, that's one of the best corners of any city in the world because you've got the, so it's called the Christian book nook and it's right next to a bakery called Nord's bakery that has actually been ranked like top 10 donuts in the past for the United States. And their donuts are phenomenal. And then right next to that, you've got Sunergoss coffee and Sunergoss coffee is like world-class coffee. They've won best, best roaster, best espresso, all these sorts of different things over the years. So you go, you get your coffee, you get your donuts, and you hit the bookstore, and you have just a wonderful day. That's, it sounds like a perfect day. It's good stuff. I would recommend it. If you're ever in Louisville, then you know what you need to do with your life now. <laughs> and nothing more. Yes. You just keep doing that all day, every day. Yes. You will die happy. All right. Well, um, ought, ought we to just, you know, jump into this? It's dumb. Let's I jump mean, in. I think, I think it's time. So uh, we're looking at the uh, Come Follow Me curriculum for the week of March 6th to the 12th. As we say every week, you don't have to be listening in that time. But as you know, if you've been following with us, we are working through the Come Follow Me LDS curriculum, the Sunday school curriculum. Um, but not just the Sunday school. We should make that clear because we are going to be working a lot from the seminary manual. But basically, the uh, LDS Church produces a weekly curriculum program for their church, and that is multifaceted. There are um, there there's the Sunday school manual, which is what they learn in their wards on Sunday morning, and then there is the primary or the uh, the seminary manual. And that is what the students who are, you know, middle school and high school, um, some of y'all who are not in Utah may not know this, but uh, students who are in the public schools, uh, all LDS students will, well, I say all, pretty much all, um, the vast majority of them will go to what's called primary seminary. or seminary. seminary sorry. Yeah. And uh, they'll do that every day after school. Um, or during school. It can be... Uh class period. Like an elective sort yeah. of a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll leave the campus, but there's typically, uh, you know, just a meeting house that's, that's near right every high near school. It. And yep. they'll just walk yep. over there. And uh, that can be an interesting thing for evangelical Christian students. Uh, it can be a point of tension for them, even socially, living here in Utah, because it's actually sort of a social capital thing to go to seminary and participate in it you feel ostracized in some senses and like an outcast if you don't go um but yeah so every middle school and high school uh student will be studying through these same bible verses they produce you know curriculum that's in alignment with the uh verses that are in the sunday school manual and then there's also the individual and family manual so it's like you also have these verses being taught through a curriculum that individuals are supposed to be interacting with on a daily basis, kind of like a devotional sort of a thing. And, uh, and then there's family devotions and stuff that activities that they can do together in there as well. So it's a very immersive, a very immersive teaching, um, 
pedagogy. Mm-hmm. That's the word I'm looking for. But anyways, so uh, this week we're looking at Matthew 9 to 10, Mark 5, Luke 9. There wasn't a whole lot on Luke 9 in here. Most of the focus is on Matthew 9 and 10. Um, for our purposes, we're going to be inter- interacting a good bit with Matthew 10. Uh, as you know, we don't cover the whole manual in detail in terms of our reaction to it, but we do uh, pick a few points that we want to go deeper on. So we'll be looking more at Matthew 10, um, and then we'll look some at Mark 5 as well, particularly at a certain passage. But the uh, Sunday School manual is very basic. They are covering this week in the Sunday School manual Matthew 9, Matthew 10, and Matthew 10, 17 to 20. And that's pretty much it. So the first section under the, the the Teach the Doctrine is covering Matthew chapter 9. And Matthew chapter 9 is uh, mainly uh, just a, a couple of accounts of Jesus healing the paralytic, uh, Jesus calling Matthew uh, a question about fasting, a girl who is restored to life. I'm just reading the ESV headings here. Totally cheating here, but it's all good. <laughs> Uh, and a woman healed, and then uh, Jesus heals two blind men, and Jesus heals a man unable to speak, and the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So that's what you got going on in Matthew 9, and the subtitle for LDS folks uh, to learn from this is that Christ has power to heal us physically and spiritually. Many of the Savior's miracle Miraculous healings also teach spiritual truths to help class members understand this. You could divide the class into four groups and assign each group one of the following passages. And it's just kind of this this exercise. And they're supposed to ask, what spiritual truths can we learn from looking at the different miracles that are happening in chapter 9? I would refer you to, you know, we talked in depth about miracles in the previous episode. So if you haven't listened to that, go give that a listen. And that might help you decipher some of the differences of interpretation there. And then we'll move on to the next section, which is covering Matthew 10. And Matthew 10 is, uh, I'll just read the first verse, and that'll give a pretty clear idea of where we're going there. And he called to him, this is Matthew 10, 1, his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The name of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, And then Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. They're told persecution will come. They're told to have no fear. Uh, and then you got the passage, Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And then uh, talking about the rewards, um, whoever receives me and whoever receives me, rece- and whoever receives, yeah, whoever receives you receives me, he's talking to his disciples, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And uh, yeah, anyways. So on Matthew 10, we got the subtitle, The Lord Gives His Servants Power to Do His Work. And uh, there's generally some encouragement to uh, know that God's going to give you power in whatever work that he calls you to do. And then the, here is uh, an important point where we're going to land. I'm just going to read the whole sub, sub uh, point on uh, this one. How can studying the commission Christ gave to his apostles in Matthew 10 help your class members understand the role of modern prophets and apostles? You might it might be helpful to compare the Savior's commission to the twelve to the commission given to the first quorum of the twelve apostles in this dispensation. 
found in additional resources. Perhaps class members could share how they have been influenced by the ministry of the living apostles. Bear your testimony of the divine calling of the living prophets and apostles and invite class members to bear theirs. Uh, maybe just really briefly, Skylar, because I know some of our evangelical listeners aren't going to be familiar with this. What does it mean when it's given that that uh, encouragement to bear your testimony of the divine calling of the living prophets? What does that look like in like the ward setting for them to bear their testimony about these living prophets? So this will be, um, of course, years ago. So there might be little differences in 10 years. Uh, but... Um, you know, typically they'll get up and they'll bear their testimony that they know the church is true and they might even throw Jesus in there, or God, but, um, for sure the church is true and, you know, Thomas S. Monson, this is prophet or Russell Nelson is God's prophet on the earth today or, you know, uh, so, what that reflects in a communal setting for them at church is that they had a personal experience that confirmed to them that they interpret as the Spirit or the Holy Ghost, and they're not often clear on the distinction that we have covered, but has confirmed to them that that is God's prophet. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it really is kind of a rote, you know... Um, repetition essentially that uh is a very central element of their faith you know so uh if you're ever having a conversation with a lds missionary um they will bear their testimony about knowing that the church is true and uh, and Mm -hmm. all that stuff at the end of the conversation like you can tell this is where they're starting to cut it off because they're they bear their testimony when they're ready to be done talking to you, mm-hmm. basically. And there's um, a cadence to it as well. Yeah, yeah. I there, mean, the the there tone is. changes. The Yep. So that's what we're talking about. That's a very normal part of the uh, religious practice within wards is to bear mm-hmm. testimonies like that. Just say it again and again and again, your your confidence in. Yep. Not not to repeat it again and again as an individual, but I guess what I mean is, is even is, as an individual. Okay. Yeah. So, well, that's you might want to give. It I, a few I imagine months. them taking turns to each other. They, you yeah, know, they but. will. But I mean, um, but I think LDS do frequently. Um, and yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, you definitely want break in between, but yeah, you don't want too long to go without. Yeah. Um, and it, it definitely. Um, I mean, you'll see parents even take up their three, four-year-olds and whisper in their ear what to say. Well, yeah. And sometimes they'll throw in personal stories. They'll be like, I love my mom and dad. They'll be on the same level. Yep. And you're right. It's funny. Without it being prescriptive from the top, it's amazing how programmatic it is. Yeah. Whether they're four years old or 84 years old. Yep. And it, it used to be the first week of every Sunday. That was the sacrament meeting. Right. Like That was the entire thing. Yeah, the first Sunday of every yeah, month. You just wait, and right. people just get up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the next section that we have, and so we're, we're going to land, by the way, on that point primarily, is just to think about this idea of modern apostles and prophets and how LDS have understood that. Um, they zone in on Matthew 10, 17 to 20, 
for the next little subsection, which is the last subsection in the Sunday school curriculum for this week. And now I'm just going to uh, read that bit since it's just a few verses and then read the subheading and, and we'll have a couple of comments on that briefly. But Matthew 10, 17 to 20 says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Okay, so that's Matthew. That, I mean, that's the word of God, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we got some interesting points to make on this bit because the subheading here, of course, is when we are in the Lord's service, he will inspire us what to say. Okay, in one sense, uh, an evangelical Christian isn't going to take any issue with that. You know, we do believe that as we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit will help us to know what we ought to say in times of need. We do believe that evangelism should be done in the power of the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit. Uh, of course, we would also want to try to keep as much of the Word of God in our evangelism as possible, knowing that it's the Word of God and the Gospel of God that's, that ultimately is the power of God unto salvation. But uh, yeah, so all I'm saying is, generally speaking, we would agree with this idea. But um, here's what they go on to say. People sometimes feel nervous when teaching or talking with others about the gospel. Evangelical Christians just remember we have a different gospel. Um, <laughs> this is Completely. a side note. Always yeah. remember that when you hear them using our words. But the Lord promised the disciple that he would help them know what to say. What do we need to do to receive the Lord's promised help for ourselves? And then they're supposed to discuss what we think we do in order to receive the Lord's help. Now, here's a fascinating point, and this ties into one of the points that was made a few weeks ago, particularly about you will know a false prophet by the fruit of their lives, essentially. Um, And you'll know them, of course, by whether or not their prophecies are legitimate or not, according to the scripture. And that was in, I was actually in the curriculum, you know, and and they encouraged us, think about Joseph Smith and think about the fruits that have come out of his work. work. They didn't say, of course, out of his his life life or out of his thoughts or out of it. Like this is just generic work. But here's what's so fascinating. And uh, this was Skylar who pointed this out. So I'm going to kick this over to you here in just a sec. But it says, invite class members to read. Matthew 10 and 19 to 20. And then it invites class members to read Doctrine and Covenants 84, 85, and Doctrine and Covenants 105 and 8 to find answers to this question. So if you want to find answers to the question of how we can receive the Lord's promise help to say what is true in the moment that we need to be able to say what is true so that we can have certainty that we are speaking by the Spirit and not by our own words and are actually saying something that is accurate and truthful, how do you know? Well, go look at the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, what was what was the interesting note you made on those particular references right. in the Doctrine and Covenants? Well, yeah, there's so there's there's a few. Let me read that verse really quick. Um, DNC 84, 85, Neither take ye thought beforehand what ye shall say, but treasure up in your minds continually the words of life, and it shall be given you in the very hour that portion it shall be meted unto every man. Sounds 
pretty mild. Yeah. But let's let's so far so similar. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, let's kind of zoom out a little bit. Yep. There's several things that I find are find are ironic about citing Section 84 here. A, if you look at um, who this is talking about, it was the leadership. Yep. Right. So Doctrine and Covenants 84 is. <laughs> specifically geared towards speaking to the current leaders yes. at that time of the church and future mm-hmm. leaders. Yep. And um, and notice, too, it's given September 22nd and 23rd, 1832. We covered the importance of the autumnal equinox in Joseph Smith's magic worldview mm-hmm. before when it came to the first vision stuff. Well, here's one of those examples. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, on the autumnal equinox, he's getting some revelation, probably through magical means. I don't know. Um, and in there... We have the uh, false prophecy about the New Jerusalem. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, C. What about the change in the twelve? So it's this is this is around the time that we're starting to see the formalization of the priesthood, but not quite. So we have uh, apostles called before this, and then we're still a, few, a couple years ahead of the of functioning, or, sorry, the organizing of the Quorum of the Twelve based on Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith's story about John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John appearing to them and giving them lesser, the lesser and the greater priesthood. Um, well, that's not in the 18, <laughs> that's not in the early version of the Book of Commandments, uh, A. So that story was made up later, and in fact, even one of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, David Whitmer, said he'd never heard of it. So this is a story that um, the first recorded reference is in 1834, some five years later, and we don't find in the 1833 Book of Commandments, which was the original 65 sections of the DNC, which in their entirety don't even mention the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood. So we're starting to see development in this section, but it's interesting that it's aimed at the leaders, and this verse used to be used by the Quorum of the Twelve as a justification for not preparing written talks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so the, know, ver- the verse was used to say, we're you by need the to spirit. speak by the Spirit, yeah. never have notes, ne- never right. have a manuscript, mm-hmm. never speak from a prompter. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> and, and like every minute is regulated today, right? Like, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. to the second. And yet, listen to the Apostle back then, George A. Smith, with the Latter-day Saints, the idea of writing sermons or preparing addresses beforehand is entirely discarded. It never was practiced amongst them, you know. Uh, when you know it, the whole point was that if the preacher prepares a sermon, and of course they're thinking of the Christians of their day. Oh yeah, you know, then that's not—they're not God's servant. If you write down a sermon, it's not God's servant. Uh, so you know, um, that's kind of ironic that it's aimed at the leadership. Yeah, it is also changing. Keep in mind, in the in early Mormonism, the apostles were the missionaries. And like they they want to be living there, <laughs> you know. We'll, we'll get into maybe some of this in a bit. Yeah. How do you how does the first presidency work its way in? David Ridges sees it in Luke nine that oh we see a first presidency developing here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the idea was the apostles were the missionaries there to go out. They weren't to live here, and they weren't to prepare talks. And this verse was one of those verses that talked about that, and they're using it for the laity. Um, and once again, in the talk about fruits of prophets, remember the test of prophets 
Well, it's whether they lead you after other gods. I think we've shown that, I mean, that's not even close to debatable. Yep. But here's an example, once again, of the fruit of Joseph Smith, in which if you look at the first five verses of DNC 84, we have in verses two and four, this is the word of the Lord. Verse three, New Jerusalem, that's going to be built in Jackson County, Missouri. Four, in this generation it would be built. Verse five, this generation would not pass away until the temple is built mm. in Jackson County, Missouri. Yep. It's not there. Still not there. Still not there. And say, well, we have an out um, in DNC 129, but that's not how it was read. I can, uh, I won't go into this here. Um, I can cite George A. Smith, George Q. Cannon, Orson Pratt, all citing this and saying it would happen that the prophecy of the temple would be built on the temple lot in Jackson County, Missouri, within the current generation that was alive in 1832. We have an exact event, an exact location, an exact time, supposedly from the word of the Lord through Joseph Smith, and it didn't happen and still hasn't. They're going to cite this section in a section on the need in the seminary manual that says, why do we need modern day apostles? Need, I mean, they failed back then. Mm -hmm. These aren't real apostles if I may be blunt, by using this biblical standards. They'll yep. lead us after other gods, and when they say things will happen, they don't. I mean, I mentioned last time, right, the, the false predictions of the Jesus Christ coming back, right? Um, he didn't. <laughs> Does that need to be said? And uh, I got a whole book over here that I'm still working on to get there. But, you know, so here we have... You know, even even the role of the apostles, if you look at DNC 20, 38 through 44, and DNC 107, 26, 33, you'll see even a shift in early Mormonism about what the role of the apostles were. When they finally organized the Quorum of the Twelve, they had already called more than 12 apostles, so all the 12 weren't the apostles. So, I mean, internally, if you're just looking at Mormonism, you see the development. And like I said, you know, when when they started bringing up, well, we have priesthood authority from John the Baptist and from, you know, uh, Peter, James, and John, <laughs> David Whitmer, William McClellan, they said they knew nothing of this. I mean, you got to keep in mind that David Whitmer is one of the three witnesses that Mormons will bring up, uh, that witnesses of the gold plates, right? And yet he said, quote, I never heard that an angel had ordained Joseph and Oliver to the Aaronic priesthood until the year 1834, 1835 or 1836 in Ohio. I do not believe that John the Baptist ever ordained Joseph and Oliver. That's one of the witnesses that yeah. they will claim. Of, kind of a big deal. Right. Or yeah. Willie McClellan, McClellan was one of the original 12 apostles, and yet he later said that in 1831, this is his quote, in 1831 I heard Joseph tell apostles, of the, or sorry, tell his experience many times about angels' visits and about finding the plates and their contents coming to light, but I never heard one word of John the Baptist or Peter, James, and John's visit and ordination till I was told some years afterward in Ohio. Yeah. I think so there's one, a lot there. But. Yeah, yeah. One of the, I, I do want to return to Deuteronomy 13, just read it again, because I know we already covered it a bit in a previous episode, but we, we do think that you ought to measure um, these so-called prophets by the uh the their fruits you know mm -hmm. but how do you do that you do that according to the standards of the bible and mm -hmm. um you know there would be factions of uh of 
credo Christianity, evangelical Christianity that would maintain those who are of a more you know charismatic persuasion would maintain that prophecy still exists to this day, but they're going to define prophecy differently under what they would consider to be the new covenant than the kind of prophetic ministry that was present within the Old Testament. And that's a connection that LDS don't make. LDS see the work that the prophets were doing in the Old Testament to be the continued work that the prophets do today. They speak for God um, in a very real sense uh, with with authority. You know, their, their, their visions and revelations come from God and are given to the church in the, in the same way that Ezekiel would have, you know, or whoever else. And so Joseph Smith was perceived to be a prophet. Um, well, how does an Old Testament prophet, what, what is the standard that they are held to in terms of their prophecies that they are giving? Deuteronomy 13 says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So even if he says something and it happens to come to pass, right? So even if he says something, predicts something and it comes true, if he's leading you after a false god, then you ought to not follow that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God has commanded you to walk. So purge the evil from your midst. Yep. That's very clear, right? Now, there's also scriptures that would say if a prophet, you know, predicts something and it doesn't come true, it's false prophet. DNC 18. I mean, sorry. Yeah. sorry. Oh, Whoa. Hey. Hey-o. Deuteronomy 18. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Deuteronomy 13. So we, we could go look at that and compare that even to this very circumstance where yep. Joseph Smith gives very clear prophecies in, in uh, DNC 84 saying there's going to be a temple built. It's going to happen within this generation. It's mm-hmm. going to be at this location. Boom, good is done. This is the word of the Lord. Yep. Didn't happen. Nope. And yet they will cite a verse in the middle of the section. Yep in the very lesson where they talk about the need for modern-day apostles yep. and, and prophets. Because, once again, they're, they're called seers, prophets, and apostles. And then the president used to also be translator, but we won't get into that. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it's... it's how, how, I mean, just how incredibly, pro, pro, how incredibly problematic that you are quoting from this passage where there is clearly a false prophecy that is given yeah. that was not of God... And you're using that very verse to try to say when we are in the Lord's service, he will inspire us what to say. Yeah, uh, He didn't inspire Joseph Smith what to say very clearly because what Joseph Smith said came to be false. Yep, uh, that's, a pro- that's a huge problem. It if is. you're LDS, you got to see that as a major inconsistency. Um, Joseph Smith, if he's going to be labeled according to Old Testament standards, which is the claim that the LDS church would make that Old Testament prophets, it's the same sort of thing that prophets today are doing. Mm-hmm. That If that's going to be your standard, Joseph Smith should have been put to death and right. declared a false prophet on the spot. Yep. Um, so, yes, I mean, and, and this, I mean, just the whole context for this, right? The claim is that this church was lost with the apostles 
then the church had to be restored through Joseph Smith. Yeah. And I just want to say, even just with the apostleship, the changes, right? You go from shooting from the hip by the Spirit, because that's what validates you as a messenger from God, to these boring, written, highly regulated, Oprah Winfrey, chicken soup for the soul stuff mm. in general conference every six months. And yet you're saying it's a restored church. You're What's being restored? Yeah. Like what was restored? What is even the same as in 1830? Yeah. What, I want one thing. I, I could name a couple, but like, seriously, think about this. What is the same mm. since 1830? Because I guess I can't, because I can't think of a couple even. Because I don't think Joseph Smith was very clear on the polytheism even until later. I think the seeds are there in the Mormon, the, sorry, the magic worldview. Sorry to repeat myself. Yeah. The magic worldview. Um, but I mean, I don't, I think he's developing and changing and they th see that as a good thing. Mm. But the point is, if you say restored, that's a past thing. Yeah. That's not, that's different than saying it's a restoring yeah. church if or it's revolution it, yeah. every other if day. If you've actually restored it. What is it? Then it shouldn't still be changing. Yes. You should have restored it. And then you preserve it. Yeah. And and once again, I mean, it just like any variable you latch on to, that's not true, right? I mean, and sorry to jump ahead, but I mean, that ties into the additional resources in this seminary manual, right? Where they cite, I mean, you think the DNC 84 is bad. Well, just keep going where, you know, in additional resources in the, Sunday school manual, right? Yep. A commission to Latter-day Apostles. Yep. Okay, this is a commission to Latter-day Apostles by Oliver Cowdery. Okay, once again, we've gone into some of the history with his dad and Joseph Smith's dad, and he's also one that started to claim the angelic restoration of priesthood, and then they started inserting it into older revelations without even telling people. Like, if you look at the... It's not like you when you get a DNC and you open up these sections, they say, oh, and we added, like tons of verses yeah. in events that weren't in here originally. They just put them in. That's how they operate, right? It's even now how they operate. It's just like they'll, they'll just put things in the website and wait for people to find it. They never, you know, it's always five clicks away that they'll do the gospel topics essays or whatever else. Well, here, if you go, it, you, they do cite it, the Minutes and Blessings, 21st of February, 1835. So now we're later than 84. So now not only do we have Melchizedek and and Aaronic priesthoods that were invented and brought up later, mm -hmm. we now have a quorum of the 12. And we have this. Well, if you look, there's a lot of edits. And to be fair, you, you have to edit something like this. It's a long thing. Right. But it is interesting what they edited out. Yep. Let me read uh, just on the website. Uh, I'll put this in the show notes from the Joe Smith Papers Project. Not, not too much. I mean, there's a bunch in here that I think is relevant to some of these priesthood and historical claims. But... He says in here, and they don't include it here, um, so that you can bear testimony to the truth of the Book of Mormon and that you have seen the face of God. That is more than the testimony of an angel. Never cease striving, dot, 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 never cease striving until you have seen God face to face. Okay, so that is a requirement. Yeah, you, uh, you've got you've to see God face to face or you cannot be considered one of the prophets or apostles. Yes, and he even says using Matthew 10, which is probably why it's relevant, although I'm not sure if it's the specific Matthew version, but the same event where he says, you know, if the Savior in former days laid his hands upon 
his disciples, why not now? Yep. So not only see face to face, you need a blessing from God. Yep. And God has hands, right? Yep. Yep. Seeing God, seeing His Son, it's like it was essential. It was essential for the missionary service, which, of course, the apostles were the missionaries. Yep. Back then, that and, that was an interesting point too. That uh, even that, <laughs> that and the, this is really just an aside, but that uh, the apostles weren't supposed to be hanging out here nope. in Utah. Nope. Um, that was that wasn't the original vision of the church at all. There was going to be the first presidency. Mm-hmm. That was established. I, I, you fill us in on that because I found that to be really fascinating. There's a ton here, and I'll, I'll try to be quick. And of course, when you're quick, you're going to leave out important details here and there. But you no, know, Brigham Young called them traveling quorums, right? I mean, so they 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 were not. They have homes all over the earth as they go, you know, do missionary work. And um, if you look, um, I've plugged this book quite a bit, and I will now. Conflict in the Quorum by uh, Gary Bergera has a chapter on the debate about the reinstitution of the first presidency. So if, if you ask an LDS person, what's the highest quorum of the church, they're going to say the first presidency, right. which has uh, the president prophet, and then he picks two counselors, and then you have a quorum of the 12. And who's in authority over the other? Well, there's uh, interesting, there's a lot of interesting stuff here because you got to keep in mind also the patriarch was in some sense also a higher position in the church than people realize. Um, I don't even think it, I wonder if it's even in pictures anymore. I haven't looked to see, but yeah. Hiram Smith was also killed the same day as Joseph and he was patriarch of the church. Yeah. So here you have the two highest authorities in the church that are now gone. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and then you're having competing people um, William Law goes off. Sidney Rigdon tries to claim the group he's in the first presidency with Joseph Smith. In fact, he was a vice presidential candidate with Joseph Smith, who was running for president at the time. And I mean, you have others, you know, uh, William Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, claimed Brigham Young poisoned his brother Samuel Smith because there was a lot of question will it go to the family? And th- there's other breakoffs, mm. right? Um, but Brigham Young took the main church that's here in Salt Lake. And, but on the way over at winter quarters, so you have all the apostles. And the question is, can we recreate a first presidency? And if just read the debate. I mean, don't take my word for it. Read the debate. Yep. Brigham Young wants to recreate it, um, but there's a lot saying we don't have the authority to do that. And they're citing the DNC saying that where's our authority to recreate it? So the, the compromise was, okay, three of the apostles will stay at home. The other nine will go out and do missions. Mm-hmm. The three at home will, will administer here at home, but we're all of equal authority. Yeah, that was the that was the state, and that's why you kind of feel bad for some of the debates later with Orson Pratt because Brigham Young clearly did not treat it that way. He treated it as they were subordinate, which is why when he died, they they didn't reinstitute it for a long time. Yeah, and Gary Berger goes on some of the quotes of people who felt dominated by Brigham Young because he was a tyrant. Yeah, that, that's not me. That's other apostles of the LDS Church that yep. are saying that. So when that's that's another thing too, where after Brigham Young died. And I'll put this in the show notes. There was a a, a, a talk given, and I, I, you know, we don't have time to go into all of it, but uh, let me just put it here because you'll see these little thing, little details 
that are really relevant. So this is George Q. Cannon, who was in the first presidency with Brigham Young at the time when he died. He talks about why only one apostle can be president of the church, though they all have equal authority. It only functions. He distinguishes, of course, the keys and the power, mm-hmm. right? The 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 authority and who exercises it. But he does say um, the twelve apostles are the quorum standing next to the first presidency. So instead of the first presidency being three of the twelve, uh, you could see by this time it's it's side by side. But now, if you ask most, they would say the first presidency is over the yeah. quorum of the twelve. Yeah. Do you see that? And once again, people LDS might function like this their whole lives and never think about these original debates and how it all started with a compromise that Brigham Young did not um, stay true to. Yeah. He agreed to and did not stay true to. Yeah. And um, so eventually, uh, I mean, that's a whole other thing, right? But if you say, okay, this Oliver Cowdery, going back to this Oliver Cowdery thing just for a second, where he's saying you have to see God or it's not even valid, Right you can see the change eventually coming in where it's now, instead of seeing God's face as the goal, it becomes obeying church teachings. Mm -hmm. Just as, I mean, they used to be called living oracles. Now it's prophets. It used to be revelations, but I mean, just look in the DNC and you'll see that um, it's been a long time. Yeah. Right. And so it, it goes from, you know, uh, I, I mean, just the, just the irony, right, uh, that, that it will go from we have this restored authority, but they never exercise it except if they can have plausible deniability over whether it's a pol- policy or a doctrine. Yeah. And that the missionary claim is about a past event with Joseph Smith, but not his later polygamy. Yeah. Um, is it better to follow the prophet or basically to be one yourself? You see... Um, you go from John Taylor. I mean, John Taylor did have revelations, and they were read in church services. Um, I've got a collection of some of them where he claims the Lord dictated, he dictating it for the Lord, and it was read in services. But then you go, you fast forward to Joseph F. Smith, who's the son of Hiram, and he was actually drilled before a Senate committee and asked point blank, have you received a revelation yourself? And he said, no, sir. He said, no, sir. He has not. And um, even said that if he had revelations, he says, I never said I had a revelation, right? But if he did, it was just, it was divine inspiration. Yeah. See that spiritual impressions. Yeah. It, it goes from, I'm going to tell you the words of God to impressions yep. about what God has made me feel. Yep. So I. You've got to, I mean, you've got to downgrade. Right, um, because the level of expectation at one point is that you've got to see Jesus face to face. You've got to even have your His hands laid on you, the hands of God laid on you, in order to be basically given the blessing to be the apostle prophet, all the way to the president of the church. You know, Joseph smelt, felt, smelting. My <laughs> <laughs> bad, Joseph Felding Smith. Uh, saying, yeah, I never had that. I just had spiritual impressions. But that's accepted and okay, yeah. apparently. Yeah. I mean, because he was still the president of the church. And uh, I don't know I don't know how much, you know, you, you would even know on kind of the current pulse, but I, I don't hear a whole lot about this. Like, I, I don't hear a whole lot of claims of the prophets now 
in the LDS church saying that they are having these face-to-face conversations with Jesus. I, I, I know I've heard that from some people who are leaders of these offshoot groups that yep. make those claims, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I've heard that as much going around now. I mean, would you say that's accurate? It seems like oh, there is more just they're, they're wise and they have the guidance and these impressions. I don't know. Yeah, no, totally. I think they take advantage of the earlier claims and that kind of linger in the culture in terms of what's expected, but they would never say it because, I mean, it went from public, clear accounts to, well, it's so sacred, it's got to be private, and it's in my heart kind of stuff. I yep. mean, and and so I would say that they, they never would come out and say they hadn't, though Heber J. Grant may have privately. Yeah. Um, but I think they still take advantage of the goal. May I say this? I don't know how to say it this way. That's not rude. If you're LDS and listening, I, I'm trying to, I'm saying this because I care about you. I don't want you living in these lies. I don't want you investing your identity in these lies. So when I'm being rude to them, if you identify with them, I know you're going to take it personally, but I'm trying to show you, Hey, there's a huge issue here. These these leaders are leading you away from the real Jesus, away from the triune God, away from the real authority of the apostles and the real authority of real prophets and leading you to hell. That's what I believe. So if I, when I attack them, I hope you can see here, I'm doing this in the way that, I mean, if you saw a little kid playing on a cliff edge, you know, you're, you're not going to be the most courteous person, you know, on the way up. To, yep. to those that are in your way. But my point is, I do think they, it's all weaponized ambiguity. Yeah. It's all, I, I had this impression, you know, so Nelson will do, I had this impression or Nelson's wife will be like, Oh, I can, he has dreams and he writes notes. Well, show us, yep. show us. Yep. You're leading us after other gods. You don't predict anything that actually happens. You brought all the missionaries home, right? Two weeks late, like everybody, and then you realized you overreacted like everybody else. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, you know, here's the thing. Joseph Smith, you, you know why these prophecies fail? I could go into the false prophecy of David W. Patton in DNC 114 as well. You know why these prophecies fail? Because Joseph Smith's a man. Yep. He's not a prophet. Yep. You know why Nelson can't tell the future with COVID? He's a man. That's why. I mean, I don't, what, what drives me nuts is the claim Otherwise, I can't predict the future. I didn't know what COVID was going to be like. Um, neither can he. Yeah. But what they do is they say, well, I had this real impression that the the most pressing issue in the world today is that we say the full name of the LDS church. Yeah. Yeah. Like the most pressing issue in the world today. Um, so I do think they take advantage of people. One of the common ones they'll, I, I mean, I've heard even around here, They'll 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 cherry pick right. They'll they'll pick situations that show the prophet to be wise, and they'll spiritualize it and make it seem yeah. like it's this incredible guidance from God. Because even even along the same lines with the COVID stuff, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, "Yeah, you know, President Nelson instituted an hour of family time in the home on Sundays instead of doing you know two hours of Sunday school. It's like you do an hour." with the family and he, he did that, you know, a year before COVID happened. And it's just so evident that God guided him to do that because he knew we were going to be in the homes anyways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so they'll, they'll say things like that, just spiritualize these guys and right. make them seem very wise. Um, mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, there's sometimes there's just practical wisdom, but I don't want to over-spiritualize that to say, oh, this guy's hearing from God clearly. Mm-hmm. And it's a far cry from the uh, early expectations in the church, I think. Absolutely. From the way you've articulated it, you got you got to be seeing Jesus face-to-face, right? Yeah. Which was, by the way, and, and maybe this will be a good transition point to a uh, credo-Christian perspective, uh, but Paul in Galatians says he was taught by God. Right, and so there is this. I think this sense of real revelation that Paul received as an apostle um, that is unique. And I think if you're going to try to make the claim that it's the same today as it was then, and there's been a succession passed along, you better have the same expectations as what there were on the uh, the prophets and apostles in the in the early church. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Um, so I think if you know, I mean, do you have anything else on the LDS? But like in particular, before we kind of move to compare this to a credo Christian perspective, just one thing that's broader than the LDS Church. I think this is why there's so much appeal to someone like uh, Denver Snuffer. Yeah, right. Because he does claim. You, you explain who he is, because there's going to be a lot of people that have no idea. Right, right. I mean, he. Uh, I mean, he kind of he was an LDS member that ended up getting excommunicated. I don't know his full story. I don't know much about him, but he is a popular author. He was a popular blogger even when he was still in the church, but he claims he, Jesus came to him, revealed things to him. Um, I mean, he there's kind of this underground movement. Not all are into Snuffer uh, or in his circles, but there's a bunch of kind of offshoot groups based on different issues who are still claiming this same charismatic authority you see in early Mormonism, yep. right? And a lot of that, what, what unites all of these Mormon voices, like Snuffer, who claim Jesus appeared to him, reveals stuff about it, even tells you how you can, oh. um, is that they all see the LDS church as a corporation. Yeah. You know, they just, right. just a lot of research and PR and, um, you know, it's, it's uh, McDonald's without the food. Yep. And frankly, I agree with them on that. Yeah. I mean, once again, if the claim is a restored church, even based on the first vision, what has stayed the same? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, like, really, <laughs> you know, for us, as we're going to get into with the real prophets and apostles, we can point to what has. Yeah. And the creeds show the con- continuity. Uh, I, I mentioned right before we did this, Jaroslav Pelikan's books on the creeds. Um, he collected nearly a thousand. And he said the hardest part about studying creeds how similar they all are. Yeah. You have Christians from everywhere reading the same scriptures, coming to the same conclusions of who God is. And I mean, at least that. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, which is significant because the succession that we think matters is that the apostles passed on their teaching in the Word of God. Right. And the creeds passed on the truth of the word of God by articulating it and helping us to discern and understand what the apostolic teaching was mm-hmm. and to keep kind of that pure line of here's what the gospel is. Yep. Here's who God is. Here's who Christ is. And so we have God's word and we have the creeds as kind of a guide of understanding how faithful believers have interpreted God's word. But ultimately the apostolic authority has not been passed on from man to man it's been passed on from man to text. And so 
we have that authority in the text. So we're not saying that we don't have apostolic authority available to us today. We just believe God by his spirit put that in the words that are in our Bibles. And so we lean on that as our authority. That's what we mean when we say things like sola scriptura, right? Like we go to the scripture as our highest authority because we believe that's where God has passed on his truth to be kept for his church to mm-hmm. have through the ages. Exactly. When, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the mechanics of apostleship in the 12th here in a second, but just to riff off that, that is so key. So when they ask, why do you need prophets and apostles? We would say we do. Yeah. Why do we need modern? Because we have the ones Christ actually called Yep. in the text of scripture. Yep. So they do still function. That authority functions through what was written. That's right. So, and you see this even in the in you know across the Pauline corpus, right? Where uh, in Galatians, the emphasis is very different in the moment. Toward the end of his ministry, he knows it's near the end. What does he tell Timothy to rely on? Yep. The scriptures, and and so that authority still there. There wasn't a sense in which it had to continue all the time, let alone continue so that the apostles could totally change everything the original ones taught. I mean, the original apostles taught the Shema. They believe there's only one God. They believe Jesus is truly God, truly man. They taught that the gospel is news about what Jesus has done, not about what we do. I mean, that's what the apostles taught. And even this is also to other Christians. If you complicate, if you get those things wrong, I know there's issues we're going to debate, but if you get those issues wrong, I think you've really gone astray. Yeah. Whether that's uh, claiming some oral tradition that is nebulous and whatever uh, is in the creeds, but isn't in the creeds, um, you know, to put, you know, to pit against scripture if need be, or it's this oral system of gifts and, Whatever, all it, what, what, John Calvin said this to Cardinal Sadaletto a long time ago. The biggest threat to Christianity is innovation. Mm-hmm. We're not here to reveal new things and change everything. Yeah. We're here to preserve what God has taught through the apostles of old, the apostles of old, in the texts we have from them, that we yeah. have confidence came from them. And here's the thing it, we don't have, Jesus didn't write a word. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, it's debated the woman caught in adultery, but I don't think that was original to John. It may have been historical, though. It's an early tradition. The point being, that's a, he didn't. He didn't. We don't have writings of Jesus. We have the writings of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, whom he commissioned to lead the church Christ started. Yeah. And so, it, it it's here. It's yeah. a wrong question. Yeah, we we've got what we need. Right. Right here. I mean, I got my Bible sitting next to me, so. there are uh, probably thousands upon thousands of quote-unquote self-appointed apostles out there. And uh, this is not just a problem that exists within Mormonism. Uh, Mormonism obviously has so many splinter groups. I I don't even know how many. Do you know? I I don't. Hundreds. I've I've got a friend. but. I've got got a friend working on it. We may do a bonus episode on some of them. Yeah, that would be interesting. But it's a common occurrence within uh, Mormonism that people will 
appoint themselves the apostle, revelator, seer, whatever they want to say, but they'll say the LDS church has lost its way. And by LDS church, we mean, of course, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the organization in Salt Lake City uh, that makes the Come Follow Me curriculum that we're working from. Um, so uh, there are many, many of those groups, even just here in the Valley currently, you know, and, and, and they're not just, they're not all extremist kind of groups that you see on TV on the discovery channel or wherever you see those right. fundamentalist groups. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there's so many different forms of them because, uh, because I think largely this idea of, um, <laughs> anybody can receive personal revelation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I am perceiving that the church is not going in the direction that I want it to go, what would keep me from saying that God has given me the impression or the revelation that I need uh, in order to go a different direction? And so some some of these people are going to go the Denver Snuffer way, and they're going to say, I'm actually having these spiritual experiences where I'm seeing Jesus. I'm in these heavenly courts. Yeah, Joseph Smith is there, and there's other special people too. There's going to be some like that. There's going to be others that are just going to take the Joseph smell or the... <laughs> I can't get that guy's name right. Smelding. We're just going to have to officially change it for my sake because I can't talk straight. Smelding. Joseph Smelding. Some are going to go the Joseph Felding. Look, I almost did it again. The Joseph Felding Smith route and just say, I've got impressions and that's all that I need to guide me. And I would just challenge even a lot of people who are leaving the LDS church. I think functionally that's what a lot of people do, even in their theological liberalism, right? We were even talking about this some just just before the show. But a lot of people that leave the uh, LDS faith or LDS church, uh, they'll still kind of do this. I, I'm going to let myself and my my spiritual preferences guide me into mm-hmm. creating my own religion. And I'm right. going to pick and choose this and that. Yep. and make what I want for myself. And I think it's just rooted in what Mormonism is. It, it's absolutely is this, rooted in it. Yeah, it's just sloppy religion yep. of self and spiritual impressions and what feels good mm-hmm. and do that, live that way. Yeah. All that all that sort of stuff. So If they have issues with the leadership, it's that they're not the leadership. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, so I, I'm gonna whether be my they own stay leader. in or they leave, yeah. they want to create the church in their own image. Yep. I mean, really, um, and they want to emphasize that you know whether you treat the church as your civil rights project or, you know, yeah, or um, want to go, you know, where you draw the line as to where things went wrong. Uh, I mean, that that's a Mormon debate. You know, was polygamy instituted by Joseph Smith, or is it all lies, or did Brigham Young go wrong with this, or did Wilford Woodruff, or where? I mean, it's all about where you draw the line, and then you are free to innovate from that starting point or that ending point that's right and it's it's always innovation based on what i like yep i mean it's 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 the most i mean it's called the american religion by harold bloom and he's absolutely right it is the most individualistic self-serving salad bar religion available to people and the reason people often leave is that it doesn't change fast enough yep if that's the reason you're leaving you're missing the point and that is so foreign to the Christian mindset of preserving the faith delivered once for all to the saints, yep. as one of the apostles says in Jude. That's right. So, you know, we're not in the business of innovating. We're in the business of preserving the faith. Yep. And that's why history matters yep. for us. That's right. 
So to make it really simple, what we're doing on this podcast is we are making truth claims. Yes. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. Mm -hmm. That he has proven that he is who he said he is because there is a historically reliable testimony that he resurrected from the dead. Mm -hmm. Really did. Like, Mm -hmm. came back from the dead. That he established his church that he appointed his apostles, that his apostles wrote down the testimony about him in the written word of God, the scriptures, that the scriptures have been preserved for the church through the eras that we would still have that central truth of who Jesus is, what he came for, how we can be saved by him so that we can continue preaching the truth of the gospel for people to come to salvation in him and in him alone. Absolutely. And if it's not written by directly by an apostle, it's done under his authority. So yeah. Mark is under Peter, yeah, for example. Yeah, that's right. That's right? right. So it's not that every word was written, but it's under their authority that's right. that these stories are documented, preserving, and then the leaders of the church, as you see in the text written later, what, who are they appointing in these churches? Elders. And what's the purpose of Elders to preserve the faith and preach it and feed God's people and to evangelize and find God's people. That's the goal. If there's change, it's in who's in at a certain time and place. But when we're in worship, we're in continuity with that faith. Yeah. And, and, and so if you're looking for Christ, you need to find the faith that preserves what he taught and yeah. who he is. And that's going to be rooted in the Old Testament. That's right. So, I mean, I know um, I, I think of this the, is a foreign mindset to LDS, yeah. but it, you, if you get this wrong, you're going to go into, if you, if you even are attracted to Jesus, you're going to be more attracted to the Christians that are less consistent Mormonisms that have crept into their churches, right? Yeah. Um, whether that's extreme charismatic, um, I hate to say it, but um, I'm Pope Francis. Yeah. Right. Um, so this is, um, we're not innovating, we're preserving. Yep. That's good. So are there still apostles in the church today? Um, we've kind of beat around the bush on this, but what are some of the arguments that LDS will use to try to say that there, there is warrant for an apostolic succession? They think, um, of course, there's going to be a little differences in how it's articulated, but they think that when Christ called the 12, that that quorum was to continue on forever. But for whatever reason, um, the church fell away into apostasy with the death of the last apostle, or they think John was still alive, but he wasn't um, called to restore that authority until Joseph Smith um, so yeah, they will they will center it into this idea of priesthood power in that quorum, and so when that went away, the church went away, and then that was what was restored or restoring through Joseph Smith. Yep. So you know, whereas um, we d- we see the twelve, you know, um, all being apostles, but not all the apostles are in the twelve. The twelve have a specific, if I may use a big word, eschatological purpose. Yeah. So when Judas died, it's not that Judas died, it's why he was being replaced. It was because Judas apostatized, right? Betrayed yeah. our Lord, 
And so you only had 11. It's the quorum of the 12. And the number's important. Yeah. So they call Matthias based on requirements you see in Acts. Yep. And, um, but we also see a broader apostleship in, say, someone like Paul. Yeah. So let's talk about Paul because that's going to be one of the points of argument that probably some people in the LDS faith and others who are going to argue for an apostolic succession, they're going to point to the Apostle Paul because they're going to say, well, here's an example of somebody who was not a part of the 12 who was then appointed to apostleship later on. Um, before you, we get into the specifics of that, let's talk generally about what the qualifications that would have been necessary for apostleship would have been. Uh, some of those qualifications would have been that an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You know, we see this coming through in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. The second, an apostle had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ. We see that in Mark, Luke, Acts, and Galatians. And then third, an apostle had to be able to confirm his mission and message with miraculous signs. Those in Matthew, Acts, uh, and 2 Corinthians and Hebrews. And also, uh, we see that uh, there's there's this point that in Matthias being chosen as a replacement for Judas, uh, the eleven also looked for someone who had accompanied Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry, and that's clear in Acts one. So on on those being the uh, the qualifications, uh, some may be left asking, well, what about Paul? You know, uh, I mean, based on all that, how does Paul? fit into the equation. And there's been, you know, a, a variety of, of thought on this. Um, but some of the things that we would want to make sure are clear on how Paul fits into all this would be, um, I think, helpfully understood in light of 1 Corinthians 15. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul refers to himself as the least of the apostles, unfit to be an apostle. So Paul had a very lowly view of himself. And uh, I just want to read a little bit from Wayne Grudem on this point. Wayne Grudem says, it seems quite certain that there were none appointed after Paul, referring to apostles. When Paul lists the resurrection appearances of Christ, he emphasizes the unusual way in which Christ appeared to him and connects that with the statement that this was the last appearance of all and that he himself is indeed the least of the apostles unfit to be called an apostle. Someone may object that Christ could appear to someone today and appoint that person as an apostle, but the foundational nature of the office of an apostle, according to Ephesians 2.20 and Revelation 21.14, and the fact that Paul views himself as the last one whom Christ appeared to and appointed as an apostle, last of all, he says this, and this is 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul says, last of all is one untimely born. That indicates that this isn't going to happen. That uh, that the the apostolic and whatever Paul's role in that was, you know, um, it's not perfectly clear. Uh, but he defends his apostleship continually. He meets most of the criteria for apostleship according to what the standards would have been, even for Matthias with perhaps the exception of not walking with Jesus in the entirety of his earthly ministry. Yeah, beginning from ministry. the baptism. Um, but he clearly has an affirmed role within the church as an apostle, For sure. and the apostles extending the right hand of fellowship to him, I think, does 
have something to say with that. But he's clear that this isn't something that's just an endless succession. I mean, even Paul is clear on that point. Um, so, anyways, I don't know if there's anything you want to add yeah, there, no. but well, yeah, just uh, there's a distinction, but we don't we don't take it so far as to say it's still this like continuing office. Yeah. Paul has a specific... Can I butt please, in there please. just very quickly? Yes. So we would want to say very very clearly, it's not a continuing office. That's it. There yeah. would be some evangelical Christians that would argue that it's a continued gift. Yeah. And I would disagree with that, disagree but with I do it. want to make clear that there's some that would say that there are people who are really gifted at church planting and kind of doing these bigger leadership roles that have the gift of an apostle, but but even they would reject that the office of an apostle has continued on. So mm-hmm. I just because want to be clear on that to be fair to other for, for evangelicals. Sure. Please, please, because, yeah, the, the 12, it's not a, a continuing thing. They're going to be in part part of the judgment right of the world. So so it's, you know, that's not a flexible number. It's 12. That means there's only 12, and these are the 12. And... Um, I would say with Paul, too, sometimes I've heard that, well, if you look at Galatians, Paul emphasizes his experience as the basis of his authority. But if you actually if you read Galatians more closely, um, his point is not that experience is what gave him the authority. He said God created him for this purpose. He has a very specific eschatological role as the missionary to the Gentiles. Yeah. And he did have, it, he doesn't point this that out. That was affirmed by the other apostles. It was. That's part and, of the right hand of fellowship. And we see it in Acts, right? There were signs and wonders that confirmed that authority. Also, look, think of the Berea passage, the Bereans. They're testing him. So he's not just coming in and saying, you have to listen to me without evidence. He's pointing to the the scriptures. He's pointing to the signs and wonders, Um so, and even the experience word, I would say the event of Christ having appeared to him. It's, if, if all Paul had was some subjective experience, well, you know, he rose on the third day in my heart. There is no authority to that. Our experience does not authenticate anything, <laughs> right? Um, what happened in God's way, in God's timing does. So I would say that we have evidence of him performing the miracles and signs of an apostle that also haven't continued. And it, so... Uh, first person eyewitness of Christ, directly appointed by Christ, an ability to perform signs and wonders. And I would say um, that often people who are claiming this, who, of course, Mormonism being one of them, but like you said, there's others, the extreme end. I'm talking Kenny, Kenneth Copeland, yeah. uh, Creflo Dollar. Uh, these are heretic. These are rank heretics. These yeah. are not Christians. Yeah. Uh, Joel Osteen, whatever. Um, they, they don't do these either. <laughs> like how many times have they, I mean, it's unfortunate because it, what it does is it brings shame upon the church every time one of these fake healers is shown to be that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's not that miracles don't happen. I'm just saying these. it's different than these. These are specific miracles and signs to validate publicly the office they're given. Yeah. I've had a lot of LDS folks in conversations uh, bring up Ephesians 2, um, 19 and 20 to me as an argument for why they still need apostles and prophets. I think we just make a quick point on that, why they're misunderstanding the text. But 
Uh, let me just read it, Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this is talking about, of course, the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the household of God, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So some some people will point to that and say, well, clearly like the church needs uh, apostles and prophets. And our simple um, point that we normally show them is how many times do you lay a foundation? Right. Right? I mean, yep. you lay a foundation once, mm-hmm. and then you build on it. Yep. And that's the whole point. The mm-hmm. apostles and the prophets were given during this early church age to lay the foundation, and now we're building on that foundation that's already been laid. As the church grows. As the church grows. There's only one foundation, and Jesus is the only is the one cornerstone. That's right. So it's, it's not, not like you're going to keep on having office. more cornerstones. Yeah. Like you got to lay another cornerstone and yeah. another cornerstone. Joseph Smith know. may disagree with that though. He may be consistent there and saying you need more Jesuses for other worlds, but yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that to the hey. side. Yeah. <laughs> well, Skylar, I know that we've got a lot more on Mark five, but I'm actually going to cut us off here because okay. we're at an hour and 12. So cue it up for another bonus episode or okay. something like that. But Sounds do you have good. any last words that you want to add specifically on the, uh, apostolic authority or anything of that nature. There's more that we could have talked about, but I think we covered basically the primary things we wanted to. One one important one, if I could just bring this up, there's a lot of, uh, man, I don't know how long I want to take on this. There's a lot of historical testimony that is given as well. I think it's really helpful. Um, and a lot of this I'm pulling from an article that we can put in the uh, show notes that I think is pretty helpful. On uh, uh, It's written by, by a guy named... Nathan Buznitz, that's a fun last name, but uh, he's just pulling together some different examples, and he gives several historical examples that uh, the people who followed the apostles didn't see an apostolic succession, you know, and and that's a problem, you know, if you can trace the people who immediately followed the apostles in the early church not seeing any significant need for an apostolic succession, but instead seeing the importance of the word of God as being that which would kind of rule as the center of the church, um, then you got an issue. And so there's some examples that he even gives from Clement, uh, which would have been in the late first century. Um, I'll just read this real quick. The apostles, this is Clement, the apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done so from God. Christ, therefore, was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments then were made in an orderly way according to the will of God. Having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God, you see what's going on there, (laughs) with full assurance of the Holy Spirit, they went forth proclaiming the kingdom of God was at hand, and thus preaching through the countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who would afterwards believe. So there's a handing off of the apostolic authority to the Word of God that is being preached, written down, and there's not a need for a succession of people in this particular office because everything that they establish is put in the word of God, which then becomes the ruling center. And you can, you can, I mean, you, you'd mentioned this some, but um, I mean, it's, it's neat too, that you can follow the progression of the Bible chronologically, particularly the new Testament and see how there tends to be a, 
a further emphasis placed on the words of God all the way leading up, even if you just follow Paul's line of thinking, uh, go read Second Timothy and look at how much emphasis there is put on God's word. You know, Timothy, yeah. I mean, First Timothy 4 or Second Timothy 4, preach the word, right? Like yeah. it's, you've got the word of God here and this is what rules over the church. So preach this, teach this, know this, hold fast to this. These are the God-breathed words, Timothy. And uh, that being Paul's last letter, yep. I mean, his death letter, he's making mm -hmm. sure Timothy knows what the church needs is here. Yep. So I'm going to go and, die, and you'll be fine. Absolutely. And how that uh, connects with even Jesus' last plea with Peter that we know of, right? Where it's like, uh, at least the Gospel of John, um, do you love my sheep? Feed them. Yeah. Feed my sheep. They don't need our fancy gifts, our testimonies, our traditions. They need God. <laughs> yep. That's what God's people need. They need him. They need the word preached, and they need the biblical sacraments. That's what they need. And if you're in the LDS church, you're not getting any of it. I want to say that. If you are in the LDS church, you there. I mean, I, I mean, this even connects to our Lord's uh, Prayer episode, right? The yeah. R is a covenantal R. It's in the church. It's in fellowship with the church. The church is not just a nice idea for individualistic Americans if it serves their self-purpose. Yeah, It's a necessary element. It's not a sufficient element. The church doesn't save. But, um, you know, if you don't have the church as a mother, you don't have God as your father. That uh, I think Westminster Confession says it best, that apart from the church, you cannot expect... There's no ordinary means of salvation. There's extraordinary means. God saves who he wants, but there's no ordinary means of salvation. And so what rules in the church? The prophets and apostles in the scriptures. Yeah. So um, I, I do think that um, just remember that the distinction between the 12, that's a technical term. They're not always called the 12 apostles. Sometimes it's the disciples, but the 12, and that those are all apostles, but not all apostles are the 12. Two other things. Uh, Ridges in Luke 9 claims that right here we have with Peter, James, and John the, the seed of a first presidency. No, they, they replaced Judas with Matthias. We don't have a first presidency. And the burden is on those who claim that to prove it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sick of this uh, type of like just treating the text like it can be whatever you, it wants. Yeah. If, if there was a first presidency in the early church, they would have said so. Instead, yeah. we have the apostles appointing elders for the church. Another thing, they, there, some of them will try to claim uh, Petrine primacy a little bit. Just remember that the keys given to Peter in Matthew 16 are given to all the apostles in Matthew 18, 18 through 20, and we actually see that authority being exercised by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 when it comes to discipline in the church. So, um, I just wanted to, there's a, that, that will apply to some LDS out there. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, what, what do I, have I been a bit snippy in this episode? No, I mean, no more than usual. No more. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do I, if uh, I, if I, how do I land it? Yeah. yeah let, let me land it. Please. I can land it very briefly. I just want to encourage anyone who, um, is in limbo right now, you know, uh, get into a church that's preaching the Bible and, uh, and see, just see what we mean when we say all the authority that we need, everything we need for knowing 
what it looks like to live faithfully unto the Lord is in the text that we have. Um, see the apostolic authority uh, in the written words of God. And, you know, if you're in a church that is seeking to faithfully expose the meaning of the Bible and teach it to its people, you're going to see just how powerful it really is. And uh, I would just encourage you, submit yourself to it. Submit yourself to God's word as it has been given and passed down. And uh, I think you'll see what we mean. So you got something else. Yeah, it's just a case in point. So in the seminary manual, that this is one of the object lessons the students are supposed to do. And they have Jesus Christ written on the top right. Mm. And then a staircase. And then you're... Oh, the classic staircase. A, yeah, a stick. We saw this in the Achieving Celestial Marriage Manual, right? Yep. And then at the bottom of the staircase, you draw a stick figure U. And it says, create a representation of yourself at the bottom of the steps. Seek the guidance of the Holy Ghost as you think about your efforts to be a di- disciple of Jesus Christ and how you can better follow him. Once again, does that sound entirely wrong? No, but remember the context. Remember the Mormon context in which these words are being used. Remember that the Holy Ghost can put thoughts in your mind and feelings in your heart as you ponder. You could select those that you feel, right? Meaning possible steps you might take to help you strive. You could select those that you feel like the Lord would have you take. Wow. Mm-hmm. So your path to becoming like Jesus, you determine by what you feel and interpret as the Holy Ghost prompting you. Yeah, They're creating little less extreme Joseph Smiths. Yep. Right there. And once again, how do I land this? Because that representation is the problem. Jesus taught and the apostles taught not about us becoming Jesus's and fathers one day on other worlds. Yeah. But that God, the one God, the triune God, condescended became man to save a people by the blood of the cross. That Jesus made a church founded on the prophets and apostles, and it's by listening to those prophets and apostles that we may be saved by the faithful hearing of the word and the faith to believe it. Amen. Thanks for listening with us again. Join us next week for Matthew 12, 11 and 12 and Luke 11, I will give you rest we will see you then